MSW Media. The Iowa caucus snafu has thrown a wrench into the race for the Democratic presidential nomination. What does this mean for the race going forward? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. I'm usually joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, but she's on the campaign trail for at least another month or two. So in the meantime, let's just get right to our episode. But first, I want to thank our patrons who brought you this episode with special thanks to Michelle Dew, Eric DeWurst, Edie, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie Gordon, Steve Hungsberg, and an anonymous patron. You can become a patron, too, on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. Before I bring in our first guest, I want to talk to you a little bit uh, about what we're doing here on the podcast, because this is, I think, a significant shift. I'm not going to have any more impeachment podcasts. We all know what the result is there. I don't think that there's more to really say about that that we haven't already said. And we are now in election season. We had the Iowa caucuses. We're going to talk about that today. And I think it's an open question as to how we should cover those um, caucuses and primaries that are coming up on the podcast. And I'm very interested in your views I've been discussing this matter with our patrons in our uh, private Facebook group, getting their feedback. But I'd also like to just ask all of you, if you have thoughts about how we should cover the 2020 election on this podcast, uh, please go to ontopicpodcast.com and give your feedback. There's a form that you can fill out and tell us what you think. I will say that we're not going to stop covering legal topics, not at all. But I also don't want to ignore important things that are happening. So that'll be potentially policy issues that are being raised by the presidential candidates. Also, though, I think we need to cover election-related matters when they come up. And I'm interested in your thoughts. So now let's bring in our first guest, G. Elliott Morris. He's a data journalist at The Economist, a magazine I read a lot when I was a kid. Uh, he is writing. He writes mostly about American politics and elections. But he's best known for being an election forecaster. He uses analytics and statistics to analyze polls and forecast elections. And he's been forecasting elections like the presidential election for a number of years. Uh, I really enjoy his work and his analysis of the data and polling. I I follow him and others like Nate Silver uh, very, very uh, closely who take a look at this sort of information. uh, and, And they approach it from an analytical perspective. A little later in the podcast, we're going to have some uh, another guest who's going to look at the same issue from a different perspective. Welcome to the podcast, Elliot. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we're recording this uh, on Tuesday in the morning, and we still don't have uh, – we're, we're actually fairly close to noon Eastern, and we still don't have an official winner of the caucus. Originally, my plan was to – have you talk about how this the winner of today of the uh, Iowa caucuses uh, was going to uh, you know you know how their chances had increased how this was going to impact the race going forward, but instead we have a really a, a non-event that happened yesterday. I'm curious, what impact do you think that's going to have the the lack of an Iowa bounce perhaps uh, on the uh, primary going forward? Well, right. So historically, the big impacts from Iowa have come in the media's characterization of winners and losers. Usually, these are somewhat empirically based off of whether or not candidates beat their expectations in Iowa. And that can inform us about a couple things when we're trying to figure out how that impacts the 2020 race, how last night's non-results impact this year. The first is that it does seem likely that it will be a bad night for Joe Biden when all is said and done. Um, the entrance polls, which are conducted by media organizations as people go into the caucus, although they aren't perfect, showed uh, a bad night for Joe Biden. If you extrapolate out what they reported, you can 
come to, to estimates of uh, first allocation for voters. Um, and if you look at some of the uh, releases from campaigns, uh, they leaked results, which of course are going to be biased you know, toward their campaign, uh, but also uniformly showed Joe Biden underperforming his polls. Um, if we think that once the results are actually coming in from the Iowa Democratic Party, that they show the same thing, um, then Joe Biden is probably in for a bit of a reckoning between now and when his favorable states start voting. Those are more non-white states like Nevada and South Carolina. Um, and it, it'll really, I think, be tough for his campaign to make the case that uh, that he that he's the front runner, basically, that he was a week ago. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, I wonder, though, and I want to get back to this point about Biden in a minute, but I wonder... How much will this really matter? Because people may not even pay attention to this. In other words, we have the you know the impeachment vote, a State of the Union, um, both coming up soon. Then there's a New Hampshire primary, and there was no big night where there was a winner and and everyone got to see a speech by the winner and talk about you know this person's victory. I wonder whether it'll have the impact. Um, you know, the the poor result will have the impact that it might have uh, in a different. Uh, in a different age, yeah, that's a good that's a good question, and maybe I I would hedge my previous answer by saying when when I you know, when I'm talking about impacts in this scenario, I'm talking about you know small on the order of like a couple percentage points nationally, and that is because we don't have you know somebody dropping out live on TV because of a bad performance, like maybe Amy Klobuchar would have if the results had been known. Um, we don't have the media coverage all the different media outlets coalescing around basically the same narrative, which is actually typically what happens. There's not a whole lot of disagreement. Um, and you know, right, as you mentioned, we're going to get into the State of the Union coverage here in probably just a few hours on the major networks uh, with you know pre-shows. Um, the president has a lunch before the State of the Union, which is always covered, although there's some controversy over that this time because I don't think he invited some uh, CNN reporters that, that he typically does or, or something about that. Um, and and so we'll yeah we'll probably end up in this scenario where like the news is bad for Joe Biden or good for other candidates you know whatever but that people aren't necessarily paying attention to it uh, you know for our coverage we're already focusing less on the horse race and more on a broader narrative that will hold once we actually do have results and so we're already talking more about the policy consequences of the race than we would be talking about the horse race anyhow uh, so this could if we're running the hype hypothetical scenario where we actually have results and it hurts Joe Biden, maybe not having results hurts him a little bit less. Now, you mentioned, we, we talked about the disappointing result for um, for Vice President Biden. It seems to me that there's a, obviously there's a difference between caucuses and primaries that's important. And anybody who was watching, uh, whether the, you're watching the news yesterday uh, when the caucuses were going on or have watched prior, you know, a coverage of prior caucuses knows that it's a process that really rewards having very fervent supporters uh, who are very energized and are going to uh, persuade, uh, to, for lack of a better word, others to join their cause and are going to stand in a gymnasium in front of other people uh, for hours on end uh, you know, to support their candidate. And it, it may possibly be that, that the voters who are in national polls saying that they support Joe Biden Maybe don't feel they don't feel as strongly about politics. They're not as energized. Um, they may not want to stand in a gymnasium for for five hours uh, for also so a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, it seems to me that there that there may be just translation problems between Biden's voters and an, and a caucus. We do know, yeah, that Joe Biden's voters are, I guess you might say, less enthusiastic about his campaign than some of the other voters for. Senator Sanders and Warren, for example. Um, and so, you know, maybe the caucus performance is just because they weren't excited enough for him. It didn't turn out. Uh, but I think the larger point there is uh, the one that I guess lots of Democrats and some in the media are picking up on now, which is that the caucuses aren't really that representative of a typical Democratic process. And I would guess that you would like to talk a bit about that more, too. So if you have specific questions, um, maybe we can talk about those, too. So let's talk first of all. Obviously, just 
on one level, the state itself is not representative of the nation as a whole. Iowa is is less diverse than many other states. I, I think, for example, if you had the Wisconsin caucuses starting off the primary season, it would be a different story, right? I think there's uh, my you know there's a higher percentage of African Americans, for example, in that state. That is one level, but it, it you know we, what I think partly you're getting at is there's. There's other ways in which the caucuses distort uh, the uh, the vote as it would be if you had an election because um, you know in an election people can just go in into a into a uh, uh, a booth right and select in private select somebody and leave uh, and here it's it's a pretty long process so I'm curious what what your thoughts are in terms of how empirically that uh, impacts um, you know turnout and the types of people who are able to vote and so on. Uh, well, empirically, you know, I don't have a study of the Iowa caucus to reference off the top of my head, but we can draw some. We can draw some lessons from general elections, uh, in which turnout is made harder by closing polling stations, um, or, or otherwise increasing barriers to voting. We know that basically, when it's harder to vote, um, that young people don't do it. Again, that might not be the case with Bernie Sanders really energizing the college kids in these college precincts. Uh, but all else being equal, younger people are less likely to, to go out and spend four hours of their night at the caucus. Um, we we know that people have to work multiple jobs, um, so you know people with lower socioeconomic status uh, face a barrier to caucuses, um, and so you'll have uh, you're inadvertently inflating the say the voices of people who are better off. And uh, we might be able to extrapolate that out a bit to say, you know, that especially in non-white communities, that caucuses would decrease their participation. Um, Iowa, as you mentioned, is not super representative already of the country in that it is the fifth whitest state in the country. Um, so I guess that specific concern is a bit inflated by, by some critics uh, in Iowa. But in other caucuses, like you note in Wisconsin, um, that would be a particular concern. Uh, I think people who characterize the Iowa caucuses as anti-democratic, especially when we're talking about relative to primary elections, are pretty right. I mean, in a country that has 350 million people, 250 million voters, roughly, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to say, um, okay, we're going to gather you all in the gym and uh, count your votes either by an app that might go awry, like it did this year, or uh, on paper, which uh, would take forever. Um, the idea behind having primary elections in the first place is that people can have their say in picking the presidential nominee for their party. Uh, and caucuses, I think, decreasingly say that uh, an average citizen can have uh, relative to other methods and that they should they should probably be abolished if Democrats are going to continue to democratize the presidential nomination process. You know, it's interesting. I mean, the, the I'm trying to think of what the arguments would be for caucuses. And one I would have to think is that having caucuses rewards organization and it, it enables candidates and campaigns that are highly organized and are good at, um, you know, building an organization and, and finding the right people to win. And it's a, sort of a proxy for how your uh, your campaign might do on a broader scale later on. Uh, what, 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 do you think that might be an argument, for example, for, in favor of caucuses? Yeah, it, it seems to me that right decreasing the ability for the average citizen to vote is a much higher cost to pay than rewarding ground ground game, basically. Yeah, I, ha I have to say, I mean, I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm just trying to come up right. with what the alternatives right. would be. It seems to me that that approach would be something like, we need to have the best possible candidate, and this is the sort of process that might generate that. I mean, an argument that I've also heard before is that having a small state go first, of course, doesn't need to be Iowa. You could pick a small state. You know, I mean, like I said, Wisconsin's not that much more populous, uh, okay? Um, but you could have a small state that's more diverse, New Mexico or whatever. Um, but the idea about having a small state is, well, this way somebody with – go first is that somebody without uh, high resources can compete. I mean, if you have, let's say, California as the first primary – uh, well, you know, you know, Mike Bloomberg would have a huge advantage. Uh, it would be very difficult for a, a smaller campaign to be able to compete. 
um, it would all be about who would have the most TV money. What about that? I mean, in terms of having, for instance, let's say a nationwide primary versus having certain states go first. I think that there are many better ways for Democrats to conduct their primary system than the one they have now. Like we've been talking about, it's biased toward whiter people because we have Iowa going first. It's biased towards candidates who have better ground game because caucuses go first, um, especially given how much media coverage there is for the Iowa caucus in particular. And um, it's biased against candidates who do well in these earlier states because the primary, as you know, is sequential. And so if candidates don't perform earlier on, they're going to have poorer media coverage, which in turn will decrease their likelihood of winning more voters in later states, and they'll drop out. So people um, who live in Washington, D.C. or after Super Tuesday essentially won't get a say over who gets to be their party's nominee. Uh, so again, if if we're living under a paradigm, which I don't necessarily agree with, if we're living in a world where the party's voters get to pick the presidential candidates, then we probably should have some nationwide primary. Um, and some work that I've done uh, indicates that ranked choice voting might be the better way to reflect a diversity of opinion over who should best be uh, the party leader, the presidential candidate for your party, because it allows people to have second or third options over just their like single preferred candidate. Um, and it allows candidates who don't have a broad base of support to uh, have a harder time winning the basically the say of their party. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a minute, because I, I, I think it's important. First of all, let's explain for our listeners what ranked choice voting oh, is. Sure. What does that mean? Can you just kind of explain that and walk through that? I may have gotten a bit ahead of myself. I think the important part is that a nationwide primary, first off, would just be a massive improvement over the sequential caucus front-loaded system we have now. Uh, but again, if we're like dreaming about our reforms or like pipe dream reforms that are probably not really that likely to happen, in ranked choice voting, voters don't only vote for one candidate when they go into the ballot box or the caucus gym. Um, they rank all the possible options. In this case, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, the rest of the candidates from one to you know 15, uh, one being the priority, the one that they really want the most. So a Joe Biden voter would put Joe Biden first and the candidate that they really don't want to be in last place, uh, or they could not rank that candidate at all if they never wanted a ballot to be cast for them. Um, and then in the tally process, to find a candidate who has a majority of the vote, um, the counting process of all those ranked ballots works like so. You first take the um, share of the vote that each candidate wins as first choice ballots. So in this case, it would probably be something like Joe Biden gets 20 or 30 percent. Uh, it would it would roughly match the breakdown of support today because our ballots today are first choice, but only one choice ballots. Um, and then on that first balloting, the candidate in last place would get eliminated. And then their votes would be reassigned to their second choice preference. So let's imagine that that's Andrew Yang. Um, or, or maybe by Michael Bloomberg, right? The Andrew Yang's voters um, would flow to their second preference, which would probably be someone like Bernie Sanders, a reformist um, left-leaning candidate. And then if it's Michael Bloomberg, his candidates would probably flow to someone like Joe Biden because Michael Bloomberg is so far being shored up by older you know, boomers, basically. Um, and then that process continues until somebody gets 50% of the vote. And in this way, parties only nominate candidates who have a majority uh, of the support for their primary. Um, you would avoid a candidate, for example, like Donald Trump, who was able to win the 2016 GOP nomination, basically with a few 20 and 30% wins early on because they have winner-take-all allocation. Um, and you would avoid nominating someone on the Democratic side who is super polarizing or uh, just unpopular and was able to win the nomination by having a hardcore base of support winning the election versus a bunch of other fractured candidates. Personally, I think ranked choice voting makes a lot of sense, period, nationwide, uh, in all elections. Uh, and, and it's already uh, in place in Maine. Uh, so it's, it's, there is a, we already can see how it works in practice. But 
putting that aside, let's talk about nationwide primary for a second. If we have a nationwide primary, whether it's ranked choice or not, winner take all, doesn't that advantage the Mike Bloombergs of the world? I mean, doesn't that just mean that whoever's got the more TV money is going to win? Because the fact of the matter is candidates aren't going to meet um, enough people for it to matter on a nationwide scale. Organization and ground game is not going to matter as much. You're not going to just – because you won't have the resources or the time to build that. I don't think any campaign would build that unless you also have the billions of dollars. It would seem to me that it's going to be entirely who can buy the most TV ads and reach the biggest number of people. Isn't that isn't that an issue? I think that that would be a concern, right? And maybe instead of one single nationwide primary, you have like a, a shorter sequential set of regional primaries where like New England and then the South and then the Midwest and then the West voters, you know, there are a bunch of different options. And I think the point is that the system that Democrats use today is probably suboptimal. And given that they have the latitude to reform the system, you know, there are a few different ways to do that. In this specific example, um, I think the solution is just to not let candidates like Mike Bloomberg run in the Democratic primary. Um, and again, we're getting a bit away from the idea that parties should be able to pick whoever they want to be their nominee. And we're getting closer to the older idea of primaries in which parties assert their control over who's allowed to run and therefore the elites in the party have a larger say over basically who candidates get to choose. And so you can imagine one system in which maybe everyone in Congress and some mayors and some governors um, vote for 10 or 15 candidates that they think should be put forth to the people. Um, and then in that case, you might not have a Michael Bloomberg run for president, uh, you know, a, a candidate who doesn't really have a lot of support among the uh, elected elites in the Democratic primary, save some mayors. I guess he has recently emerged as like, the mayoral candidate, um, which I guess isn't super surprising given that he is a former mayor. You'd instead give more weight to candidates uh, who have a track record of holding elected office, preferably, again, for the, the party in which the primary uh, is happening, uh, unlike Michael Bloomberg, who is a, also a former Republican and independent. Um, and and you could safeguard against other billionaires like Tom Steyer running for president or people who uh, don't have a lot of elected experience. problem with that is, you know, then it also excludes people like Bernie Sanders. Basically, yeah. anybody that the establishment doesn't like doesn't get to run. I, I don't think that that's going to fly in the Democratic Party, but I think you know, and I think even if you did that, let's just say it was even if you had that system, you could imagine somebody who is in elective office. I mean, I live in the state of Illinois. We have a governor, um, you know, uh, J.B. Prisker now. He's, you know, very progressive governor and very well liked in the Democratic Party and has accomplished a lot of things. This is not meant to be a knock on him. He's also worth billions of dollars. And so, you know, you don't want to have a situation where somebody who's worth, you know, three or four billion dollars can just say, you know, I'm going to drop a billion, as Bloomberg is saying. Uh, and just have an overwhelming. I mean, if he did that, if a if if a candidate was in a nationwide primary, they just would have the ability to reach so many more voters. I think the the problem that we're identifying here is like campaign finance, right? Rather than the nominating system, rather than the theory of how people make their voices heard, but like how people fund their campaigns. So that could also probably be tangentially solved for. Um, but right again, like this is, I mean, it is a massive system. <laughs> <laughs> I will, I'll, I'll tell you as a lawyer, uh, that's a harder one. So, I mean, it, we've had campaign finance podcasts and had our, you know, guy who was arguing the Supreme court, opinion, you know, cases and, and campaign finance. That's oh, really yeah, hard right. given where the Supreme court's at to change that system. You know, there's, it's been around for a long time that uh, the, the Supreme court has held that, uh, you have a first amendment right to spend as much of your own money on a campaign as you want. I mean, what are you going to do with that? Yeah, once once we take these, I'm, I'm speaking a bit abstractly here, but you're right. Once we take these sort of abstract uh, reformist ideas and try to test out the ones that would work in the real world, um, you know, uh, a nationwide primary, I guess, could in, in, inflate the chance that Michael Bloomberg is nominated. Um, but right now, you know, he, he still does have the ability to spend all of his money in any of the primaries <laughs> and caucuses he wants, sure. and he might. You know, he could benefit under the current system had he run in like March instead of November and qualified for uh, the early states. He could have benefited from just blanketing the airways in these really small states 
um, with cheap media markets uh, and still could have run away with the nomination. So I would say we probably have a billionaire problem and not like or a billionaire's running for president problem rather than um, – Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, that may not go away. Yeah. I mean, we we may get to a point where it's we're we're choosing between Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates to be the next president of the United States. Um, I, I will say, putting that aside for a minute, um, to and getting back to the Iowa caucuses, one moment yesterday that I thought was interesting, and it's it's why I am uh, at times it probably sounds slightly sleepy when I'm talking to you is I was up watching what was going on, and Pete Buttigieg decided essentially to declare victory uh, at, at midnight or so. Um, I thought it was an interesting move. I mean, he, he clearly had uh, some, you know, kind of he couched it a little bit and hedged it a, a little bit. He didn't say, you know, it was something like, by all, you, know, it, it, you know, by all indications, we are victorious or something like that. But it struck me as a move where they could say, look, there's a dispute over what the, you know, we don't know what the totals are. We're just going to say we won, and we'll get some media coverage or a bounce out of that. Uh, and I'm curious what your thought is on that and whether you think that will generate any bounce or rewards for him. Uh, it was probably smart politics, right, to seize the moment. And he did also, I think, go out on stage before other candidates did to make his speech, which, again, um, smart, you know, a smart knowledge of the media, perhaps, by him or his campaign staff. Um, but, uh, yeah, this probably goes back to the original point, which is, that the conversation in the media is quickly going to change to other subjects. It's going to change both to impeachment and the State of the Union, but also to the next election, which is New Hampshire just next week. Um, so to the extent that the people know, you know, uh, hey, actually, Pete, like there's not a great uh, <laughs> data to back up your claim that you won. Um, uh, and to the extent that people are obsessed over Iowa because of the fallout rather than who did well or poorly, um, it probably doesn't have a huge impact uh, on the race. Well, let's just I want to uh, briefly pivot to the general election for a minute. You know, we see now since impeachment polls are actually getting better for Trump. Uh, he looks in, in some ways just to some casual person like me, like maybe he's in a better position than he otherwise was. What, is, what do you see, uh, you know, in terms of a general election fight? Obviously, it's going to be dependent a lot on who the Democrats choose as a nominee. Yeah, so there was a brief period in The Economist's polling with YouGov um, in which Trump's approval rating and the 2020 general election generic ballot um, question had surged toward Trump. Um, uh, but it doesn't actually look to have stuck. It seems to be a, a one-off that moved the polling averages and sort of generated a lot of media attention that maybe Trump had emerged from impeachment in a better position. I don't think we have a whole lot of empirical evidence for that. Um, you know, this is tricky, right? Because on the one hand, like a president is impeached and he's running for a re-election, that has to have some negative amount of impact if you're operating in this like very theory, political science-driven world in which being impeached is a bad thing. Um, but in 2020, in which impeachment is actually just partisanship, it seems, um, Trump's acquittal in the Senate, or even, yeah, his, his acquittal in the Senate um, probably just reverts people back toward their partisan preconceptions about the president. Um, I'll say The Economist is working now on a project that takes our national-level polling and creates state-level estimates for the general election and for Trump's approval rating. Um, And even in the Midwest, we're seeing stability over the past month. Um, There was a brief surge in December toward the Democrats, uh, I think right after Trump had been uh, impeached. That lasted for two to three weeks, but again, it has since leveled off. Um, what about, is there anything that data tells us or, the, or anything you've seen that tells us who would be a good matchup for Trump? I mean, in other words, I've heard all the arguments from the different candidates. I'm not taking a position on it, but I'm just curious, if, is there anything in the data that um, that could tell us something one way or the other? Yeah, and again here, not taking a personal position on it, but an empirical one. Um, Joe Biden does poll better against Donald Trump than his opponents do, both nationally and in the Midwest. Uh, so if you look at polls in Wisconsin, and again, polls nationally, he does about three to four points better than Bernie Sanders and five to six percentage points better than Elizabeth Warren against Donald Trump in November. 
that is some suggestive evidence that Joe Biden is better prepared to defeat Trump. It, we, we might say he's a more electable candidate, although I'm putting air quotes around electable. Um, uh, and the other data we might pay attention to is people's uh, understanding of the candidates along the ideological spectrum, their perception of how extreme or moderate they may be. Um, and again, let's rewind a bit to like the political science theory behind elections, which says that the candidate who can best appeal to the median voter is the one that's best uh, the one that's best poised to win the election. Um, we see in YouGov's uh, polling that people think that Joe Biden is more moderate than Donald Trump, but that he's the only Democrat that they think that of. They think that Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar are all more ideologically extreme than Donald Trump. So again, operating under this political science worldview, if they're more extreme than Donald Trump, they're less likely to win over these independent and moderate swing voters. Uh, and again, I'm putting air quotes around moderate because a lot of the time when we're talking about people being moderates, we're really just talking about them like not having a whole lot of opinions and defaulting to the label moderate. They're not a lot of the time actually ideologically moderate. But, you know, again, that's that's probably a podcast for a different time. Um, <laughs> there, so, so point being, there are a few numbers that point to Joe Biden being better poised to win the election. Well, I, look, I, I think for a lot of our listeners, this may be the first time that they're ever hearing from you. And I think a lot of them are going to want to find out more about you or read a lot of your work. I certainly read a lot of your um, analytical work and analysis. Where should they go to do that? Yeah, primarily I am on Twitter all the time. As a millennial, I am never off social media effectively. Um, and so they can follow me online at at G. Elliot Morris. That's with two L's and two T's. Um, and you can, of course, read all my work in uh, the weekly print editions of The Economist. And we also have a U.S. politics newsletter uh, that we just started for the 2020 campaign. That's at economist.com slash checks and balance. It's our checks and balance newsletter, which your listeners will be uh, familiar with. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. So now let's bring in our next guest. Kyle Kondik, who's the managing editor of Sabotow's Crystal Ball at the UVA Center for Politics. If you have been following politics, if you're one of those politics junkies, the uh, Sabotow Crystal Ball is one of the sort of mainline publications. That is sort of the Cook Political Report that have been rating elections and, and evaluating elections and predicting elections in a nonpartisan way for many years. Uh, and they have a very different approach than the analytical approach that we've just heard about. It's more qualitative. They're they're giving their own opinions. And so you're going to hear everything from a different perspective. I, it's my hope that you can compare the different perspectives and we can, we can see everything from two different ways. And that might help us answer some of the questions and look forward to the rest of the Democratic presidential race. Welcome to the podcast, Kyle. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Kyle, we, we were going to be talking about the winner of the Iowa caucuses uh, today. Uh, now we're really talking about what what comes out of this non-result or delayed result or whatever you want to call it. What do you think the impact of yesterday's uh, snafu is going to be on how the Iowa caucuses uh, change the Democratic race going forward? Well, it might be that whatever bounce or impact the race might have had, could very well be muted because as of as we're recording this now, uh, we don't really know when the results are going to come out. Obviously, we've got the uh, State of the Union coming up on Tuesday night. We have um, the 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 the, the, the uh, finishing of the impeachment proceedings likely uh, on Wednesday. Um, we've got another Democratic debate on Friday. We've got the New Hampshire primary next Tuesday. Uh, we're in a, a very news-rich environment, and so the opportunity for people to find out and digest the Iowa results really was. Um, was Monday night, and then they didn't get them, and we don't know exactly when they're going to come out. Um, so it, you know, it may be that there's there there's not much of a uh, of a PR bump um, for these candidates from Iowa, and that maybe New Hampshire will uh, more uh, uh, more serve that role. So typically, the Iowa caucuses obviously they come first, but they're different than just a straight primary. The caucuses are their own uh, animal in terms of how they're operated and the types of people that show up for caucuses and so forth and the organization required. 
So how, how you know, this is a question from one of our patrons, is how accurate is the caucus in predicting ultimately who the nominee is, typically? Iowa has not had that great of a record of um, of projecting the uh, the eventual nominee. Now, I guess, you know, Obama it won it in 2008. Clinton won it in, uh, in 2016. Uh, but if you look on the Republican side, you know, Ted Cruz won it in 2016. Uh, Rick Santorum won it in, uh, in, 20, in 2012. Uh, so, the, you know, they didn't end up be, becoming the nominee. Uh, you know, usually I think if, if a candidate were to win Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, that person would probably be a fairly strong favorite to win the nomination. Although... The Democratic primary electorate has evolved so much that Iowa, New Hampshire have these lily white electorates. And of course, the the actual Democratic electorate is much more diverse with a lot of African-Americans and Hispanics and Asian-Americans, et cetera. Uh, And so Iowa, New Hampshire may be maybe less predictive and important, at least on the Democratic side now than maybe they have been uh, historically. And even in 2016, Clinton only very narrowly won Iowa, and there are some who believe that if the actual voting totals were released, as opposed to just the delegate, the, the, the delegate equivalents, Bernie Sanders may very well have gotten more votes in Iowa in 2016 than Hillary Clinton did. But that information was never released. And I think part of what's held up the the results here is that the state party is going to try to re- release those results, although again we don't have them yet. Um, but so, you know, arguably Clinton may have basically been on the wrong side of both Iowa and New Hampshire in 2016, and she won the nomination anyway because she was stronger with demographic groups that weren't really represented in, in Iowa. So that's the hope for uh, Joe Biden, who apparently did not do particularly well, although, again, we just really don't know. We're just basing this on what the candidates are saying and a very limited number of results that we have. Um, you would not expect Biden to win New Hampshire either. I think the danger for Biden is that somebody um, ends up winning all three of the the early contests, Nevada, New Hampshire, and Iowa, um, which might make him look bad down the line. But I wouldn't draw too many sweeping conclusions from Iowa yet, particularly because we don't really have any results yet. Yeah. Well, what what about the role of what about Bloomberg's role in all of this? Because let's just say, for instance, that Bernie Sanders wins the first three uh, contests, Iowa, New Hampshire, in Nevada, right? Well, they, and and then maybe Biden wins South Carolina. Once those those are over, Mike Bloomberg spending you know hundreds of millions of dollars on TV ads is that going to have an impact in some of these later races? Uh, it very well could. I mean, we've never really seen a candidate spending um, at such a at such a high rate, and also a candidate who may very well be viable despite skipping the initial contests. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani kind of attempted to do something like that when he when he basically skipped Iowa in in um, in, in in the 2008 race for the Republicans. Uh, John McCain arguably skipped Iowa too, and he ended up winning the nomination. But um, Giuliani just couldn't really keep keep things going by you know seeding that early ground. Bloomberg's a different story though, and also uh, if Sanders were to do well in February, I think that would probably be good for Bloomberg or at least for Bloomberg's. Uh, theory of the race, because if Biden were to sort of fall by the wayside and be non-viable by the time we got to March, um, the so-called Democratic establishment might be looking for some sort of alternative to Biden as a counterweight to Sanders, who many of them don't want to be the nominee, and Bloomberg could maybe step into that role. And uh, But you know, you, you, you could just really imagine that if Bloomberg were to defeat Sanders by dramatically outspending him, um, how much that would frost Sanders supporters, uh, given um, their dislike for basically for rich people, particularly super rich people like Bloomberg, and also that that uh, Bloomberg would be uh, essentially re- representing the so-called Democratic establishment that the Sanders people also don't like. Well, I think it goes broader than just Sanders people. I think a lot of Democrats would be very concerned about a billionaire essentially buying the nomination. I think, you know, if he becomes the nominee, it's going to be an interesting coalition he puts together. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I wrote something um, when Bloomberg got in the race about how uh, it, it would have seemed odd for um, someone like Bloomberg to come in and win the Democratic nomination. It would seem odd to me, at least in the, in, in the here and now. But if you were a historian writing about Mike Bloomberg becoming the Democratic nominee in 2020 and you're writing, you know, 30, 40 years from now, it would be pretty easy to place Bloomberg within the context of the time, which is that this is a time of, of income inequality, of 
Um, you could almost argue that it's sort of a second Gilded Age and a you know billionaire coming in and essentially buying a presidential nomination would be sort of makes sense in an, in an era like that. And and I think that, the, you know, the president is kind of comes out of that, that same school too. Although Bloomberg has way more money than the president. He's got way more money than Tom Steyer. He's got way more money than any of the, uh, the candidates uh, running for, running for president this time. Um, so it, it's just an interesting thing to follow. I, I've, I've had a hard time with trying to assess Bloomberg because again, he's, He's a he's a truly a unique candidate. You know that word "unique" gets thrown around a lot and isn't really accurate. But in this instance, I think it's the right word because not only is he um, he's not he's not in the debates, he is not participating in the first four February contests, uh, and he has essentially an unlimited amount of money to spend uh, on this race. Those are all three. Those are three things that um, we haven't really seen from a successful nominee in the past. Um, but maybe he's going to change that. I don't know. You know, it's interesting, by the way, it's really interesting to hear your analysis. And one thing I, you know, I think all our listeners are pretty sophisticated news consumers, and they, a lot of them have, heard, have read a lot of analytical approaches to predicting elections. And, and certainly, you know, that has value. You, you, you know, you're, the, the publication you're a managing editor for, The Crystal Ball, is sort of, I would say it's been around for quite some time and is, is adds sort of, it looks at data and polls, but has a more qualitative um, That's right. approach. And, I, and can you explain the value of that to people? I want people to understand, just so we're all sophisticated consumers, what the advantages and disadvantages of the approaches are. Yeah, um, uh, so that's that's exactly the word that I use to describe us as qualitative. In that, um, you know, we do ratings. Uh, so you know, if we call a race a toss-up, we mean we really mean that we don't think that there's a there's a favorite. Um, leans Democratic, leans Republican, likely Republican, likely Democratic, and then safe them, safe GOP. Uh, and so we, you know, we we rate uh, the electoral college, the Senate races, the House races, the governors races with that um, with that rubric. Um, that is a little different than what, say, um, like Nate Silver and Five Thirty Eight do, uh, and you know, I think I think they do a great job um, and uh, produce a lot of really interesting content. But the way that they they kind of uh, assess these races is is different than ours. It's more of a it's a quantitative um, way of looking at it, and so they they uh, build these models in which they determine there are certain factors that they think have been predictive in the past or that they've tested have been predictive in the past. They build a model and then they keep putting data into the model. So whether it's polling or fundraising information or any number of things. Um, so in essence, they, they build this model and then they they feed stuff into it and that sort of spits out whatever the percentages are, the chances are in a given race. We take all of those things into account ourselves, but ultimately we are the ones making um, the judgment. And so um, again, there's there's just a there's just a uh, there's just a difference there. If you if you think about the kind of the um, people who, who you know who, who you do kind of qualitative assessments. Um, it's it's us, the you know Sabados Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia Center for Politics. Um, the Cook Political Report is, is another outfit that that rates races pretty similarly to the way that we do it. Uh, and also Inside Elections, run by Nathan Gonzalez. That's also um, uh, the new version of the old uh, uh, Stu Rothenberg, a political report. Rothenberg was a uh, was and is a, a you know long time uh, election uh, handicapper. Uh, so th- that's sort of the dynamic in the. Uh, in, in kind of the, the sort of the hard election prediction um, uh, universe. And, you know, we're all trying to do the same thing, trying to figure out, um, you know, who, who's going to win and who's favored and what what's important in these races and what, what is not important. Um, they're just different ways of going about it. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and I will say, I mean, an analogy is to you know Nate uh, Silver, who you mentioned, came from sort of the sports space where he did developed a lot of analytics there. It's really the difference between looking at statistics and analytics in in sports versus a scout uh, looking at a player. Um, so let's um, let's talk about a little bit about the the um, the the caucus itself. One thing that uh, a lot of uh, our listeners are asking about and are trying to to understand is now there's been such a focus on the process versus the result is there a lot of them are wondering like what the requirements just are for actually participating in a caucus and whether or not that is exclusionary or distorts um, the result in other words how many hours do you have to spend you know at a caucus you know is it even accessible to people who are disabled etc 
Yeah, so so it's 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 generally a, a time commitment of maybe a couple hours uh, on a you know an evening in February and early February in Iowa. So of course it's probably going to be pretty cold out. Um, I don't I don't actually know what the actual weather <laughs> weather was. I'm assuming is relatively relatively cold, but. Um, uh, and you know, you, you also, there's also no secret ballot. So you, you essentially have to go to this event and declare publicly by where you stand in the room, who you support, um, which is, again, that's different than, than really a, a typical, uh, typical election. And so I'd imagine there are a lot of folks who don't like to participate in the caucus because they value the secret ballot. They don't want to have to deal with, um, disagreeing with their friends and neighbors who may also be in the room uh, about who they who they may uh, support. There also were uh, satellite caucuses, so I think there was there was some one in Florida. There was there were a few overseas um, in which uh, uh, people who are you know uh, from Iowa can participate uh, can participate that way. Um, which is so it's kind of like an absentee balloting balloting process. Although of course it would be, be just be easier if it were a conventional primary and people could just um, cast a regular ballot. But the bottom line is that there's just more of a time commitment, and so for folks who don't have the ability to give that time commitment for whatever reason, um, it, it it is it is naturally going to be a more exclusionary process, and you know the turnout would just be a lot higher if it were a if it were a primary. I think that's uh, I think that's pretty clear. Yeah. So, you know, in addition, I would say another sort of, you know, issue with the with the caucuses that makes it different is that votes can get moved. In other words, you know, people, you know, we there's certainly on caucus night, there's a lot of focus on this by the press. But essentially it rewards, I, I would say, candidates who have very highly energized voters, uh, candidates who have organizers who are particularly influential and so on. That's right. Uh, and there's a 15 percent uh, threshold for getting uh, these state delegate delegate equivalents at these various caucus sites. And the 15 percent number is really important to remember uh, throughout this entire Democratic primary process, because in order to get delegates at the statewide and congressional district level uh, in these states, you have to get at least 15 percent of the support. And that's the same same thing is true at these caucus sites. Uh, so the candidates who who or the people who support candidates who in the first round of voting do not get to 15 percent are allowed to switch. And so they uh, end up you know, rallying to um, candidates who have who have more support, who, who cross that 15 percent threshold and, and are uh, uh, and, and are, are, are viable. Uh, and so that's why there the Iowa, the, the Iowa Democrats supposedly are going to release both a first preference and a second preference. So the first preference is, you know, who did everyone in the room end up supporting? And then the second preference is who actually, you know, after after people switched, um, who actually crossed 15% of delegates. And so in the initial round of voting, you'll see um, some of the kind of the lower tier candidates uh, maybe get, you know, two, three, four percentage points worth of support. You know, someone like... Uh, you know, Tom Steyer or, or Andrew Yang, who I don't think are going to get, you know, 15% plus of the total second round vote. Um, and if you want to compare, if you want to try to test the accuracy of the various polls that came out before the election, it's probably fair to compare the polls to that first round of voting, because that's kind of the pure preference test. And you, you see um, who, you know, who gets the most support all the way down to who's getting to one or 2%. But on that second round of voting, uh, a lot of the lower tier candidates are going to fall off because they're not going to be hitting the uh, viability thresholds, and so the the vote itself will become a little bit more top heavy. Um, uh, and but that's that's the calculation that is used to actually um, award um, uh, eventually award the uh, the delegates. Uh, but again, it's a you know it's a pretty complicated process. And uh, again, the Iowa Democrats were going to report. Um, that first preference, uh, the second preference, and then also uh, the uh, the ultimate de delegate uh, allotment. And I think that because they were reporting, wanted to report all this, that's probably why it's in, in part why it's taking so long to get the results. Well, you know, now I would say there's been a, a quick reaction that a lot of people have had to this entire episode is let's not have Iowa caucuses be the first in the nation anymore you know, let's move to a different state or do this differently. I'm curious, first of all, do you think that there's, you know, do you think that there's any uh, potential for that happening? And what do you think is a realistic change? Well, part of it, part of the problem here is that 
both the Democrats and the Republicans uh, have kind of helped establish Iowa as this leadoff caucus event. And of course, New Hampshire has it written in state law that they have to be the first primary. You know, for Republicans, it's really not that big of a deal because the Republican electorate is just uh, a lot less diverse than the Democratic one is. And so uh, uh, Iowa and New Hampshire having lily, lily white electorates is not that uh, it's not that that much different than what the national a national Republican primary electorate would look like. But the Democrats are much more of a multiracial party uh, and having two almost entirely white states uh, lead off their primary process doesn't seem like a particularly good fit for the Democrats. And then you also have these these administrative problems, uh, although the Republicans have struggled with that, too. I mean, in, in 2012, uh, it seemed like ultimately Rick Santorum won, but it took a couple of weeks to, to, um, to, for, for the state party to finally figure that out. And I would also say that, it, that it, it seems like kind of still kind of an open question as to who actually won the most votes in, in Iowa in, in 2012 on the Republican side. But it would probably take both parties coming together in some way to try to force Iowa out of this slot. And I don't think the Republicans are very interested in that. In fact, the, the president tweeted this morning that he, you know, that he supported Iowa having the first in the nation caucus and all that. Um, and the other thing is that just generally speaking, you, you see, just see this all the time. Um, there's always this, you know, in the wake of something ridiculous or bad happening, there's always this cry for reform and then people move on basically. And the political capital required by the DNC and maybe the RNC to actually force this change in you know in twenty in, you know several years from now, um, who knows if if they actually will have the the kind of energy for it. Now it's also possible that Iowa itself will essentially take itself out of this business. Um, that might be the more practical way of this you know of of, of a change to the process here. Um, but again, you know, it's easy to say, oh, the the caucuses are doomed. Uh, I don't know. I, I really don't. I think that we, we need to be cautious about making such a sweeping prediction because it's not it's just not clear to me how um, how the parties would force that change and whether there's even the will with the parties to try to force that change. Yeah, I think the Democrats may have already been hurt a little bit by prominent Democrats uh, sort of saying things that Iowans would perceive to be negative, right, towards sure. the state. I think that, you know, politicians don't want to, we don't, you know, I think Democrats don't want to lose Iowa and Democrats, um, you know, want to be able to be competitive for the Senate seat there, a United States Senate seat and other things. So I think uh, Democrats would have to be careful about how they approach that. Um, one thing I'm curious about is we already talked about, you, you know, you talked about how this muted bounce uh, is going to potentially come out of Iowa, given all the other news this week and the fact that the results are, are still unavailable. What what is this? What does this mean now for how the race shapes up in New Hampshire, South Carolina, and so forth? Well, the you know the electorate in New Hampshire is is somewhat similar, at least you know racially to uh, uh, to Iowa, and I would think that uh, Bernie Sanders and maybe Elizabeth Warren would have something of a home field advantage in New Hampshire, um, given that they represent, uh, the Senate seats in, in neighboring, in neighboring States. Um, and Sanders, uh, really was polling pretty well in Iowa, uh, prior to the caucus and, uh, arguably polling even better in New Hampshire. Um, now New Hampshire also sometimes doesn't want to ratify the choice made in the Iowa caucus. I'd say the most famous example of that is in 2008 when Barack Obama won Iowa and appeared to be favored in New Hampshire. Uh, and Hillary Clinton ended up winning in New Hampshire, and that that race ended up, um, you know, going all the way. Even though it seemed like you know relatively early on that Obama was favored, but New Hampshire put the brakes on that race from turning into a runaway. Uh, I think it's good for Sanders, potentially, particularly if he ends up winning Iowa, that he goes from a state where he's pretty strong in Iowa to a state where he should be really strong in New Hampshire. Uh, and that's where you could start to really see the ball rolling for um, for Sanders. You know, if it's Buttigieg who ends up winning uh, Iowa, um, he, he's polled pretty well in New Hampshire, too, but he doesn't seem to have the broad breadth of national support that uh, that a Sanders or Biden uh, has displayed in the past, and I almost wonder if it'd be better for for Biden if 
um, if there'd be kind of a muddy result from both Iowa and New Hampshire in which he doesn't win, but no one else really establishes themselves either. Uh, and then you go to Nevada, which I think is sometimes sometimes overlooked, but you know that's a much more diverse electorate that is also a caucus. Uh, I think Sanders has shown some strength there too. I think Biden has as well. You know, there's there's the the, the possibility though for Biden that even though a lot of us thought that there was a real potential for Biden to do poorly in these early states, it's different from talking about that in advance to actually living through it. And if Biden sort of seems to looks weak in these early contests, does that kind of chip away at his perceived electability advantages and, 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 and other factors? And, um, you know, I think the bottom line here is that this race is, is very much in flux. So l- let's look forward. I know that we don't have any idea at this point who the Democratic nominee is, but just looking at the general from a broad perspective, how do things look for Trump uh, given that you know impeachment now is, is uh, going to be coming to an end soon and this hasn't seemed to impact his approval rating negatively, at least as far as I can tell? No, I don't think impeachment has, has hurt him. And, and I think you can make the argument that his, his approval has actually gotten a little bit better um, over the course of this impeachment saga, which you could trace back to um, the fall of, uh, of, of 2019. Now, I'm, uh, you know, just this morning, uh, Gallup, you know, one of the, the kind of uh, blue blood uh, national political polls, uh, they had Trump's approval at 49 percent, disapproval 50 percent uh, amongst uh, American adults. That's one of the best polls I've ever seen for for Trump in terms of approval, um, particularly from a um, nationally recognized pollster. Um, that said, I think there's also some some thought that perhaps impeachment has sort of energized Republicans. Uh, I think sometimes in politics, if if someone feels threatened, um, they may be more likely to be engaged. And I think impeachment is sort of inherently a threatening event to Republicans. Uh, so whatever spike. Trump has gotten an approval, and I think Spike's probably the wrong word to use because his approval is is usually very stable. It's just that um, it's closer to being around forty five percent now than than maybe it's been uh, at, at at certain times in the past, or maybe it was closer to forty percent. But if Trump is consi- starts to consistently move over forty five percent in polling averages, which again hasn't really happened yet, but if it does happen, I would think he'd be sort of more of a of a favorite maybe to win re-election as opposed to how I look at it now, which I, I sort of think the general election is, is a coin flip. You know, Trump benefits from um, peace and prosperity. Uh, he benefits from having really no no real primary opposition to his own party. But at the same time, I think a different president who was less sort of divisive and intentionally divisive uh, would have a higher approval rating and a better shot than, than Trump does uh, does now. So there are a lot of conflicting indicators. We don't know who the Democratic nominee is going to be, whether that person is is strong or weak, whether that person has different regional strengths than Hillary Clinton did. You know, maybe there's been some thought that Bernie Sanders might do a little bit better in uh, um, in some of these places that swung toward Trump, but maybe he's weaker in the suburbs that swung toward Clinton. Um, whole lot of unknowns. I think it's, it's probably best to just just kind of look at the 2020 general election as uh, something of a coin flip. Wow. Well, that is not what I'm sure a lot of our listeners want to hear, but I think it, you know, that is uh, what I have also heard from a lot of elected officials uh, who are Democrats, by the way, who are, you know, who, who think of the election as going to be a very difficult one for Democrats. I, yeah. And, and, it, and look, um, sorry to interrupt, but I just sure. want to make this point. Um, obviously, Democrats are spooked because of what happened in 2016 and, and the expectations. And frankly, um, I think people in my industry, you know, who do political prognostication, probably are going to be inclined to give Trump the benefit of the doubt because of the fact that um, so many of us thought that that Hillary Clinton was favored in the last election. Um, and and so, th- you know, I think we have to be sort of cognizant of our own. Uh, 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 not necessarily of our own biases, but just uh, um, sort of, uh, uh, you know, in, in how aware of how one would naturally react to what happened in 2016. But that said, I really do think if you just look at the data, it's not suggestive of the Democrats being favored necessarily. Now, it's not really suggestive of Trump being favored either. Um, so that's why I sort of just throw my hands up and say it's 50-50, which, I, again, I realize – um, is also kind of a uh, <laughs> not exactly a brave position sure. uh, or a profound position to take. But honestly, I 
just I can't go any farther than that myself. And I think a lot of a lot of people uh, are in are in uh, the same boat when they look at what's going on here. Yeah, I think it part of it is just a lack of information. It's so early. Don't know who the opponent yeah. is going to be. Don't know what what you know things are going to look like then. A lot a lot up in the air. Well, for, that's right. Thank you so much. What can if people are have enjoyed listening to you and want to read more of your work, how can they read the, what you're doing in the Crystal Ball? Sure, we're at the centerforpolitics.org uh, backslash Crystal Ball. Uh, you can also just Google Sabato's Crystal Ball, and it, it'll it'll come up. Uh, and uh, if so, our newsletter typically comes out every Thursday morning. So if you want to um, just just give us your email address, that's all we need. And it's free to sign up. Uh, you could be on our mailing list and, and get the newsletter uh, every Thursday and uh, sometimes other days too. We just did a special primary preview on uh, Monday. Uh, and again, you can always read us on centerforpolitics.org backslash crystal ball. Uh, I am also uh, um, a pretty avid uh, person on Twitter. So I, I'm at K Kondik. Uh, if you're interested in uh, um, politics news and um, I don't know a little bit of Cleveland sports too, which is <laughs> kind of kind of depressing these days, but um, that's that's my other that's my other hobby. So, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast. Go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic.